Well, it is so good to be together today and uh, so grateful to see God at work, to see God answering prayer. And I don't normally call people out, but I just want to praise God that Gail Dietrich is here today. So if you don't know, if you're a part of our prayer team, you know that we've been praying for Gail and God's just been doing a marvelous work. And we're just happy to see your smiling face. So you can get mad at me later for calling you out. That's fine. But um, other things that that are going on here uh, within our church, we're so excited to be involved in what God's doing around the world. We're also excited to be involved in what God's doing here locally. And, And certainly within our church family, if you've been with us for the past few months, you're aware that we're really trying to make our facilities more open for more people, especially those who face physical Obstacles to getting around, maybe a wheelchair or, or a walker or those kinds of things. And so in light of that, we've embarked upon what we're calling the Access for All project, which involves essentially taking that building you see through those windows and expanding it this way to make way for uh, an elevator, to make way for uh, restrooms that are ADA compliant, that are open, that are welcoming, and also to, to redo and expand our nursery in, in that place. And so our goal has been to uh, raise with commitments... And, and gifts uh, about $900,000. And so thus far, the latest report is this. We're up to $793,977. And in, in commitments and, and in gifts. And, and that's, you know, about three months or so we've been involved in this. So we praise the Lord for God working through you in this way and, and being generous with what God's given all of us um, so the amount, the amount remaining now to, to reach that goal is, is $106,023. And so we've, uh, the, the, our deacons have extended the time frame. And by the way, forgive me, I misstated it a few weeks back. I said that we had till uh, the end of March. In fact, the deacons are saying, they, they said to the end of February. So I'm sorry about that. But the end of this month is, is what we're looking for to have those um, commitments and gifts in. And, and just also, by way of reminder, this is a piece of the puzzle in terms of making this project happen. So um, the project itself is a $1.65 million project uh, out the door. And so certainly the part that we've been talking about is, is the, the, the goal of raising $900,000. Um, but the, the, the rest of that actually is coming from, we have $450,000 uh, in savings, and, uh, and then there's an additional amount that we're going to be taking on uh, of uh, $300,000 by a loan, if necessary. And that's an if necessary for several reasons. One of which is this. We could just end up giving so much that we don't have to borrow anything, which would be exciting. Uh, or we might actually be able to look at the project. And, and, and Paul, if you know Paul Delancey, you know he's one of the most resourceful guys you ever met. So if there's a guy that can bleed some money out of a rock, it's probably Paul and so we'll be looking at ways. For example, this past weekend, yet again, we had pl- plenty of volunteers helping with the, the other project that we're working on, which is the Ed Wing renovation. That's sort of the, the prerequisite to get this done. Uh, and people have been showing up and demoing. Uh, I believe I encouraged you last week, hey, if you've got frustrations, folks, just grab a hammer. You know, get going. It's very cathartic just to, you know, take it and start swinging. So um, that's all happening, but um, just be aware of that. So, we, you know, if, if we can actually overshoot uh, the goal. We will praise God for that. Um, God's in charge. All the resources in the world belong to him. It's all his. And we'll look forward to seeing what he does with us in the, in the weeks ahead here. Uh, we find ourselves uh, back in our series in 1 Corinthians this morning. And uh, there's a, a, an author, professor, and psychologist named Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina. 
And she put out a book entitled Love 2.0. And she suggests that love needs an upgrade. Uh, Because the fact is, the kind of love that everyone knows about and talks about and sings about and wants, it's all outmoded. We need a new model. And, And what does her new model look like? Well, these are her words. Quote, love is not exclusive. Love's time scale is far shorter than we typically think. Love, as you'll see, is not lasting. And so that's her point. Um, And most of all, she says, love is not unconditional. She goes on to describe it, and we're kind of going, well, what is she talking about? And she's saying, love is that micro moment of warmth and connection you share with another living being. Love is an emotion. Love is a momentary state. It's the re- and what would come about if we upgraded to her version of love, the 2.0 version? Well, she goes, right now at this very moment, when I'm crafting this sentence, I do not love my husband. Because our positivity resonance, after all, only lasts as long as we're engaged with each other. The same goes for you and your loved ones. Unless you're cuddled up with someone reading these words aloud to him or her right now, you don't love anyone. What does this love 2.0 sound like to you? I'm sorry, this does not sound like an upgrade to me at all. This sounds like going from the iPhone 14 back to the big old brick to used to carry around, right? Or worse than that, some of you won't even know what this is, going back to a rotary phone, right? Like, <laughs> this is love 2.0. And you can see, though, she's actually got something here because she's, she's bringing to fruition really all the frustrations that people have felt with this thing called love for all these years. Why? Because it's been sort of a game, you know, there's the kind of a pretending thing. There's the, there's the strategy thing. There's, I'm working this for my benefit. There has been a redefinition of love already from what the Bible teaches it to be. And so either you keep playing this fake game or you just redefine it to fit what's actually happening in your life because it's not permanent and it's not happening and it's just a feeling and it's so much less. Uh, and really, ultimately, we find that when we start looking at love in that way, we certainly embraced a massive error. And what is that error? It is that we have love located primarily inside of us. It comes from us. It's focused on us. It's for us. And thankfully, the Bible points out something that we need to grasp. And that is this. Love, real love, comes from outside of us. From God himself. From his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we find in 1 Corinthians 13. If you go ahead and open to that, you'll find it on page 137 in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul has been addressing the lack of maturity in the, in the Corinthian church and the way in which they have had false criteria for true spirituality going on throughout uh, their, their lives together. Some followed this leader, Apollo. Some followed Cephas. Some followed somebody else. And you were really spiritual if you followed them. Or, or, or others found that the circumstance in their life, they thought they could be more spiritual if it changed. Um, the single people wanted to be married because then they could be really spiritual. Married people, frankly, wanted to be single. They thought it could be really spiritual. And, 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 and those had different work environments and other things. They wanted to change them because they thought then... I can be a really spiritual person. And Paul says, no, that's not the point. And then people would say, well, if you have this spiritual gift, then you're really spiritual. And they were prioritizing different spiritual gifts against one another. And the gift they were especially caught up in was the gift of tongues. 
which was speaking a known language they had never learned before. And uh, we had an entire discussion on spiritual gifts for several weeks. If you weren't here with us for that, I would encourage you to go ahead and go to the website and, and, uh, and, you can, and we, we covered that extensively there. But now Paul, Paul has described the gifts and what they're for, namely for the building up of the body. They're, they're given by God for a purpose. And then he says to them, this whole thing you're caught up in, this prioritizing of the gifts, this fixation on tongues, you are showing yourself to not grasp the essence of what it is to know God and to walk with him. And he goes on to say, I'm going to show you something even more excellent. So by the end of, of chapter 12, Paul says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he launches into this description. It's a description of actual love. And uh, we're going to read it together now. So uh, because this is the word of God and we want to honor God in that way and receive it with that kind of posture, would you please stand and follow along as I read? beginning with chapter 12, verse 31 in the second portion. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that you would open our hearts, that your spirit in these moments together would change us from the inside, that we would actually grasp the above and beyond anything more excellent way of love. And we ask that it would transform not only our our view of you and the way we walk with you, but also the way we care for one another. Be glorified as you teach us this now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at love as the beyond anything excellent way. Above it all, above the, the atmosphere, beyond our solar system, it's just 
absolutely in every way soaring far and far above anything else. And over the past couple of weeks, we, we've seen that, first of all, that love is essential. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. Paul talks about all these different gifts and the use of them and all these different virtues and the way in which he can demonstrate spiritual maturity and sacrifice to the point of his own body being burned as a martyr. And he says, if I do that without love, it profits me nothing. As we said before, what is nothing? It's, it's a zero with the edges rubbed off. Nothing. Love is, con- is and the work of the Holy Spirit are closely connected. And it's really the authenticating mark of the true followers of Jesus. Jesus himself told us that. They, the world, will know that you're my followers. How? Because of your love for one another. It's not a defining mark. It is the defining mark of a believer. And so we saw also that not only is is love essential, but love is also fruitful. And we saw that in verses 4 through 7 as Paul described what love is. It's patient. It's kind. And then he goes and unfolds that even more. Not jealous. Doesn't brag. Isn't arrogant. Doesn't act unbecomingly. Uh, This idea of being patient is is the idea of being, um, the opposite of being short-tempered. It's someone who has a really long fuse. And kindness is the idea of, of giving mercy to someone. In other words, you're, you're treating them in a way that they don't deserve. And again, we find that this basis, as we've said repeatedly, in God himself. This is what God's like. God is the God of, of, of grace. He is the God of kindness. He is the God who is very patient. We're told that he is patient, that all would come to repentance He's not bringing his wrath today. There is patience with God in that. He is calling all to turn to him. He's patient toward us. When, when God describes himself to Moses, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He goes on to say he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So just and loving. He's truthful, and yet he gives mercy. And so all these descriptors that we find in verses 4 through 7, as we talked about last week, really are a picture of who God is. They are a picture of Christ. And they they show us what love is really like. And it certainly isn't love 2.0. No, it's deep. It's rich. It's full. It's real. Interestingly, last week when we left off, you know, the last phrase that Paul has in verse 7, you'll notice, you'll notice he says, endures, love endures all things. And that, that word, very strong word, actually comes from a, from a military kind of context. And it's, it's really the picture of, of someone who's in some sort of a battle, and they're in the face of, of violent suffering, maybe even violent persecutions. They're not merely kind of minor annoyances or grievances. No, it's someone who's in the thick of it and who's deeply, deeply suffering. And they're standing firm in that. That's love. But now Paul moves to show us how this endurance stretches. How far does it stretch? How far does it really go? What what does it really last through? And we find that love is not only essential and fruitful, but that love is also eternal. Love's eternal. If you look at 
verse 8, he says, love never fails. That's the idea of falling. Love never falls. And so, by the way, if we, if we think that somehow this kind of love can simply be reproduced by human beings, psh, <laughs> this blows that out of the water. This can't come from us. Can't be stuff we muster up here. No. No, this love never falls. It never collapses. It doesn't fold under pressure. It continues through death into eternity. And so in order to to really emphasize the eternal nature of love and the fact that the Corinthian church are preoccupied with these gifts, the gifts aren't evil, by the way. The gifts of prophecy and and gifts of tongues and and the gift of teaching and and the gift of, you know, all these other gifts that God gives, they're not wrong. What was wrong was the Corinthian church was taking those gifts, a select few of them, and saying, these, if you have these, you're something. And they were boastful about it. They were arrogant about it. And they would look down on other Christians who didn't have those gifts. Like, well, yeah, you're you're saved. You're kind of saved. But you'd be really spiritual if. And so Paul's decimating that idea here by saying, whether it's tongues, whether it's prophecies, whether it's knowledge, all these being good gifts, any of those things, they, they, they are swallowed up, really, in light of the supremacy of love. In the same way that all that is temporal is swallowed up by the perfections of eternity. And so he he says in verse 8, if there are gifts of prophecy, by the way, that little particle there that says if, that's important. What's the implication? Paul's saying not everybody has that gift. There might be, there might not be. So if there's gift of prophecy, by the way, it's going to be done away. If there are tongues, they're going to cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away. He's just saying all those things, they are not eternal. They don't go on forever. They, they have a time frame in which they are active. And he describes why in verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. And then verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, you get to verse 10. I got to tell you right now, that word perfect, there are books and books and books and books and books and books and books written on what does that word mean? There's a lot of work done there. And that's good. There should be a lot of work done. It's, it's an important passage. Um, and there's several views on what perfect means. So, some would say the perfect is when a believer dies and is ushered into heaven. Uh, others would say the perfect is when the canon was completed. Uh, others would say that the perfect involves maturity in some ways. Uh, others would say the perfect comes when uh, Jesus returns, when he comes back. And so uh, we're going to explore this. And I, I'm not going to spend too much time on, on uh, you know, the, the controversy here because um, I want to make sure we don't miss the main point of the passage, which is that love is supreme. That's the main point. But here with the idea of perfect, I do think that in verse 10, uh, because of the broader context and the immediate context, that it very much points to this idea of maturity in some way. Um, The the Greek word is teleos, and when Paul uses that term throughout this book, he used it back in chapter 2, verse 6, when he said, yet we do speak a wisdom of those who are mature. Same word, teleos. Uh, And then next, in the very next uh, chapter, if you look at chapter 14, verse 20, you'll notice that he says, brethren, don't be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Again, same word, teleos. So, 
around it, you do have this idea of maturity. Um, and so I think there is a sense, not, not to mention, if you look at verse 10, notice, a mature, complete would be the idea. Uh, that is a better antithesis to partial, which you see right there in the same verse, right? Verse 10, when the perfect come, the partial will be done away with. That's a contrast. So the contrast to partial, is it perfect? No, the contrast to partial is actually complete, maturity, right? That would be the idea. And, uh, and then the other idea of maturity comes in the very next verse. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, notice how many times the word child is used, by the way. One, two, three, four, five times. Childishness there. Uh, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child. Again, that's the idea of, of being immature. And yet I grew up, I became a man. There's maturity right there. In that, in that place. So it seems like verse 10 is pointing out the fact that, yes, um, we know in part, we prophesy in part, and, and yet there's a point in time when maturity when, comes along and, and, and those things are, are, are done away with. Now, uh, verse 12 then, like what's he talking about there? Then it seems like now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now at this point, he's actually talking about the return of Jesus. So it's almost like a, an and what's more pattern. Paul's saying, hey, hey, the gifts that you're all focused on, Guess what? They're for a season. There comes a time of maturity when they're not going to be in play in the same way. But even more than that, there's a time when Jesus is coming back. And frankly, you're not going to stand there in front of Jesus on that day and go, I spoke in tongues. <laughs> you're not going to do that. No, no. Instead, there's something greater coming. So in light of that... Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'm going to be fully known. I will know fully just as I've been fully known. And so we kind of have this beautiful picture of, that's building here, of what happens in the overarching wonder and beauty of love. Um, You know, Paul's standing there and he's going, I put childish ways behind me and I grew. And in the same way, the church is growing. And, uh, and yet, in an even greater way, um, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back soon. And now you're going, well, hey, it's been a couple thousand years. I know, it's not that long. And to the Lord, nanoblip. In the grand scheme of things, not that long. He's coming back soon. And uh, you think about that, that picture of the mirror, right? The very best mirror in those days, if you, if you had a really good mirror, it was probably made of metal, and it was polished. They didn't have what we have with, with the way we can have a glass mirror. And uh, so even that nice mirror, polished really well, it kind of gave you a blurred, imperfect picture. In other words, it was nothing compared to the full-on face-to-face encounter. And so we're told... Um, by, by the Apostle John, that when we see Jesus face to face, we're going to be like him if we're going to see him as he is. Right? There's that moment of seeing him face to face. And so the full knowledge of, of uh, not only ourselves, but also who Christ is and then what it means to be with him into eternity is going to come in that moment. And that's a thrill. So Paul is telling them in verse 13, he says, you know, now, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. He's saying, because, in light of that, in light of eternity, rather than you getting caught up in this little thing here and now and making it everything, look past that. 
Look at what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And um, I was thinking about, yeah, how, how can I kind of try to bring this forward more? And there, there's, there's an illustration. Now, this is, this is not something I came up with. This has been used by others for many years. Maybe you've seen it. So if you have, maybe you need to hear it again. But it's the idea of rope. I thought I could use like a, a volunteer. Can someone come up? Maybe Grace, come on up. I know her. So this, this, this is a rope. I want you to take this and go out and around as far as you can go. Just take it. Un- unfurl it. Let's just, like, just go. Let's get on. Just take the end of that and just go as far as you can. So this is a rope. Imagine that this rope... <laughs> well, that's not going to work, is it? Imagine that this rope... If you can't untangle it... You know what? This is your eternal existence right here. That's what it is. But imagine it that this is your existence... This is the time frame of your existence, and this is basically you. And this little white taped part right here, this is your life here on earth. This is now. And that, that's great, love, thank you. Um, That is eternity. This is now. That's eternity. How much of the way we live and what we do is so caught up in this? Oh, I got to plan this. I got to do this. I've got to work for that. I've got to earn that. I've got to save that. I've got to retire. I've got to have this all in place. And we fret and we worry about it. We're so like, shh. When there's all that. And the world, we, we know this pressure, don't we? The world around us is telling us this, isn't it? Everywhere you turn, everywhere you look, it's all about this. There's going to be a game later today. Maybe you've heard of it. By the way, I'm going to watch it. There's nothing wrong with watching the game. We're enjoying it. But do you realize that we're probably not going to know who won the game off the top of our heads in about two years? We're not going to know. We're not going to remember. You might remember it was stolen, man, from the Niners. I don't know. I'm kidding. We won't. We won't. We won't. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. I'm feeding into Andrew's bitterness. This is not good. All right. Anyway, I'm moving on. But this is our lives. And, and, and so as the world presses in on us and says, this is what you've got to focus on. This is what you have to get. What, what if we took to heart to what the Bible really says? Which is, which is certainly not that this doesn't matter. See, that's, that some false teachers have come along and said, yeah, this doesn't matter. Like, forget it all. Just, it's all that. No, the Bible says this is what it is because the way you live this influences that. But the point isn't this. The point is the way God has designed it for this to connect to that. And it might be like, well, then you're crazy because if you're not going to, you're going to be a fool, man, if you're not going to work all these details out and do all these things and put all this together and get your life together. Oh, man, there's got to be that raise and that thing and there's got to be that relationship. And Oh, man, I was disappointed here and I was sorry. You know, If you take all that and you say, wait a minute, this only has its significance in light of the fact that it's connected to that. So I'm going to make choices here that are different than the pressure I'm receiving from the world around me. Because this world isn't what matters. I'm going to invest in things differently. I'm going to give up things differently. 
I'm not going to seek after what everyone else is after in this crazy, crazy race that everyone has. I'm not going to get caught up in the false economy of comparison. Talked about that last week. And some might say, well, then you're a fool. Well, I don't know. What's more foolish? To live this in light of all that? Or to be preoccupied with this as if it's everything? And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. By the way, they weren't even just caught up in this relative to a secular culture saying, go out, buy this, save this, get that, amass this for yourself. No, they were like getting caught up in spiritual things that were just for the here and now. They were caught up in their gifting from God rather than seeing that those gifts are here for a time. But what is superlatively greater than any of those things is the fact that love endures all things. And so why not live that way now? By the way, love is patient. I would venture to say every time I'm wrestling with impatience, and I do, a part of it is this isn't happening the way it's supposed to. When I see this, it's like, oh, right, Lord, thank you. Kind, gentle, not jealous. All of those things come from my more spiritual moments when I start to see this more. What does this do to anxiety? I'm not saying you're never going to feel anxious. That's not the point. But what do we do with it when we do feel it? Love is greater and extends far beyond and past all. He tells us that faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest is love. Why does he say that? Well, faith, in that moment, when we see Jesus, we're told that faith becomes sight. So it's different. It's It's not the same thing. It's not needed in the same way. We're told that hope anticipates the future. A hope that's already seen, Paul tells us in Romans, is not hope. But hope anticipates what's to come. So when we're in this, we're there. (laughs) The hymn sings it, says it so well, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Love endures. Love abides forever. So live today in light of that. We're told that when we are brought to Christ, when we come to Christ, we're infused with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually gives us resurrection power from the age to come to live this time differently. We're actually living this in Christ in light of that and also infused by power by the Spirit of God. It's a foretaste, really, of what's to come. Why not live in that now? Or do we want to just settle for 
the crazy, absurd preoccupation with this. The choice is yours. What's it going to be? Thanks, Grace. By the way, that's our over-the-back hand, hand uh, slap that we have. This eternal perspective, I feel like um, there's someone who captures it really well in several different places. I'd like to just hear some of those thoughts right now from him. It's C.S. Lewis. And I love how he puts it when he says this. In Mere Christianity, he writes, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. And so when we, when we face those kinds of understandings of and what Paul's bringing out here in love is above and beyond all of this. It changes the way we interact with this. It makes all that we do within this world at this time meaningful. And yet, what are we supposed to do with the impatience, the cruelty, the envy, the boasting, the arrogance, the rudeness, the self-insistence, the irritability, the resentfulness, and the wrongdoing that we all find within ourselves? How hard is it for us to love others? Be they our friends, family members, a spouse, a child. Here's one for you. How hard is it for you to love your church? can be challenging. Don't take it personally, but you're not the easiest people to rub elbows with all the time, okay? You're just not. I'm not either. If we're completely honest, or as honest as we can be, there are times that we even struggle to love God. But when we're doing that again, it seems as though yet we find ourselves back at that place of somehow I'm thinking of this love is coming from me. It's inside me. And we've got to break out of that and realize we don't get caught up in the game. We don't get caught up in the distortions or the redefinition of love. Instead, we look at Jesus again. Why? Because Jesus' love, he entered into this broken, dark world. He came down to rescue us. And in his love, you know what happened? Love conquered death. Jesus is alive. He's risen. And what does that mean? That means for all of us now, 
If you're in Jesus, you've been given everlasting life. And if you're not in Jesus, the invitation to you is to turn to him. Receive him, trust him by faith. Know what it means to have your life wiped clean by the grace of a loving Savior who paid the price for your sin in your place. What happens now is our relationships change. When we see love is the above and beyond all things thing, we don't relate to one another in the same way anymore. Uh, Lewis captures this as well. C.S. Lewis writes this. He goes, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And that's why love is the main thing. Love surpasses all. Love causes us to see other people in light of who they really are. Again, you've never met a mere mortal. Everyone is on a path heading towards a destiny, an eternal destiny. The greatest of these is love. Leon Morris, he he wrote, uh, when he concluded this section of his work on this chapter, he said this, the commentator cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. And I read that and I'm like, amen. I, one of the most beautiful passages of scripture. So I was thinking, well, how, how can I conclude this? You know, how can I wrap it up? I don't really know. And I thought of a, of a song. Uh, that this is an old song. This thing goes back uh, about 30 years. It's a guy named Billy Crockett, and he, uh, he wrote this on this passage. 
And I just thought, well, maybe the best I can do is just close by sharing a song. And so uh, that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, The song is called Portrait of Love. Oh, wow, that's right. When I take that off, it goes away. Okay. That makes sense. It's good. Am I back now? Okay. The song is called uh, Portrait of Love. And you'll find the lyrics there in in your bulletin. So if you want to follow along, um, those... uh, just so you can capture the words. But I think it, it summarizes and really brings forward what we've been talking about. He wouldn't sit still long enough to have his poor Twice the speed of love An artist who tried to freeze his time On canvas or in stone Found that the real life isn't still life Even when the life's alone A traveling artist known as Paul Painted truth with words The truth that he saw was burning love That comforts and disturbs And each year he grew until he knew The portrait couldn't wait Thank you.
As we go, let's go in light of this amazing, overwhelming love that we've been shown in Christ. Christ is the demonstration of God's love for us. And now that we have that, we are secure in that we can now walk out of these doors and we can live in this world in a way that is stunningly different from the pressures and the other ways in which this world tries to conform us to itself. Let's live differently because love conquered death, because Jesus is alive, because love is above and beyond the greatest thing in Christ. Love conquers all. Go in his joy.